0: This is An Economy of One, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
1: Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, economyofone.com, an economyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One on Facebook. Joining me now is Dan Mitchell. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, specializing in fiscal policy, tax reform, international tax competition, and the economic burden of government spending. He's been published in Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Forbes, USA Today, and Investors Business Daily. His blog, International Liberty, can be found at danieljmitchell.wordpress.com. Dan, welcome back to An Economy of One.
2: I'm glad to be back on the program.
1: I appreciate uh, you spending some time with us. I uh, what, what triggered uh, me to tell my producer to give you a call was uh, you wrote a recent column on uh, cronyism, and that's one of our favorite subjects here. Uh, you call it cronyism. Uh, many people call it crony capitalism. Our friend John Allison calls it crony socialism. Before we get into that, I just want to do a little background question. You know, President Trump... Uh, was sent there to drain the swamp, quote-unquote. Is he draining the swamp, or is he just uh, replacing the vermin?
2: Well, so far, it's too early to tell. <laughs> uh Uh, That being said, the only really effective way of draining the swamp is to shrink the size and scope of government. And uh, we have only a few pieces of data. Trump has made some, uh, I think, some decent appointments to the regulatory agencies. So that might mean less red tape, because of course the incumbent businesses, the big companies, tend to use regulation as a weapon against smaller competitors. So Mm -hmm. my fingers are crossed we'll see some progress against cronyism there. And then we just saw uh, just yesterday uh, Trump releasing his budget. Uh, and, and he is proposing to have a smaller government, at least compared to what it would be growing uh, if left on autopilot. And uh, and so if he follows through on that, which would mean actually being tough with Congress and, and if necessary, vetoing spending bills that have too much uh, pork in them and shutting down the government if need be, uh, well, then I think you know we might be able to maybe
1: not drain the
2: swamp, but at least lower the water level.
1: One of the things that always comes out, and we kind of forget about it, but... President Trump proposes a cut, okay, in something, okay, one of the departments, education or EPA or something. Is it really a cut or is it simply a reduction in the amount of the increase?
2: (laughs) That's a great question because most of the time in Washington, Uh, When you see uh, media reports, when you hear special interest groups, when left-wing members of Congress uh, get up on the podium and they're talking about budget cuts, Mm -hmm. almost always it's simply a reduction in a previously planned increase. So if a program uh, sort of on autopilot was expecting to get an 8% increase and you have a budget proposal that says, no, you only get a 2% increase, they call that a 6% cut. And that's, of, of course, completely dishonest because every real household and real business in America, they understand that a cut means you spend less next year than you did this year. Uh, Now, having said that, there are a few programs where the president is actually saying, no, we're going to get rid of this program, or we're going to actually genuinely spend less money on it next year than we're spending this year. So in a few cases, Trump is proposing to cut programs, but for the most part, he's simply saying government shouldn't grow as fast uh, Mm -hmm. as it was growing under Obama. I mean, if you look at his budget, you look at the actual real numbers in his budget, and on average, over the next 10 years, government would grow 3.46% a year. Now, I don't care whether you're using new math, old math, or whatever. If government's growing 3.46% a year, especially with inflation projected to be about 2% a year, there's no way you can call that a budget cut.
1: Right. I measure it by the annual deficit, and the national debt. If we were truly cutting, it seems to me like the budget deficit would go down each year, and eventually it seems like the national debt would cut back somewhat. But I'm just concerned. Now, let's get back to the cronyism, uh, because you did an interesting, interesting article, and you quoted some guys that did a study talking about the return on investment of cronyism. I mean it's it's pretty profitable for a major company to buddy up to the government and government officials, isn't it?
2: Yeah, well, what you basically uh, had is a couple of economists uh, from academia, Uh, they did a study where they looked at the White House visitor logs and they measured uh, when senior high-level corporate executives went in to meet with people at the White House, Uh, they then measured what happened to the stock performance of those companies compared to the overall financial averages. Uh, And it turns out that if you're spending time in Washington cozying up to to senior policymakers, that's good for your company. Now, to me, that's horrible news. (laughs) I do not want companies to think that going to Washington is a way to profitability right. because the only way you make money from Washington is usually by screwing over in an unfair way your competitors I mean I don't mind if you if you beat your competitors because you provide better products at lower prices with better service mm. but if you beat your competitors because you're getting some inside benefit from government where where politicians are imposing regulations on your competitors or uh, or special taxes that apply only to your competitors that that's cronyism that's not not capitalism. And that's why this new academic research is so, so I guess, depressing.
1: How did we get here? I mean, we've had lobbyists for a long time, but it seems like the last, I don't know, maybe the last few administrations, the last couple, it's really come to the forefront is, is that the availability of information or is the cronyism getting worse and worse and worse every year?
2: Well, the key thing to understand is that government keeps getting bigger, and there's more and more regulation, uh, and, and that sort of creates a, play, a playground for cronyism, uh, because once government has immense power to, to determine who wins and loses in the private economy, it then becomes financially profitable, profitable not in a good sense, but in an unfortunate cronyist sense. It becomes profitable to, to sort of cozy, cozy up to the politicians.
1: I'm going to be devil's advocate here for a minute and let's say, uh, I'm competing with Honeywell or Aetna or any of these companies on the list. And in real life, I'm competing with them. Am I, I guess the question, should I buy into the cronyism as well to stay competitive or is it still possible to, to compete and win without playing that game? Well, I
2: certainly hope, in the long run, the answer is to compete honestly, not looking for special favors from the government. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the problem is, once you have a couple of big companies going into Washington and looking for special favors, you then have this incentive structure. I mean, let's say you're playing uh, uh, basketball against one of your friends. And 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 on his side of the court, the basket's only six feet tall. And on your side of the court, you know you're having to sink baskets in a regular ten-foot hoop. I mean, wouldn't you think that's unfair? Now you might say, okay, I'm going to lower my hoop to six feet as well. But then you're not playing basketball anymore. The whole thing becomes very unfair. So, so it's really really tragic that government is playing such a big role in our economy now because it does lure people into thinking they have to play that game.
1: You know, I I found it interesting in your article, uh, and you were looking at some of the research, that when Trump got elected, uh, some of these companies' stocks went down. So the general investors apparently can put a dollar price on this relationship uh, with the president, with the the Congress, and, and some of those people, some of the stockholders, some of the investors felt that you know what, maybe those companies won't fare as well under uh, President Trump as they did under President Obama or uh, potential President Clinton.
2: Well, I mean, think about it this way. Obamacare was supported by big pharma and big insurance. Mm-hmm. The uh, Dodd-Frank bill was supported by Goldman Sachs and the big boys on Wall Street. Uh, so, so these big companies decided that, hey, you know, you know, sure, we'll get hit by regulation and taxes and stuff like that, uh, but we have sort of big administrative staff and compliance staff, and you know, we have big law, legal, uh, departments and accounting departments. You know, we'll be able to swallow these costs, but we'll put our small competitors out of business or at a big disadvantage because they won't be able to, uh, uh... to absorb these costs nearly as well so so if you're a company that got in bed with big government and you figured that okay well obama's been good for big government and when we figured out how to work with him and and we're assuming hillary's going to win the election so we'll continue to work with her and then you get this surprise election with trump winning and trump saying no no instead of more regulation we're just going to lower taxes and reduce red tape yeah if you're a cronyist company then all of a sudden you might not be as attractive to investors.
1: (laughs) You know, it breaks your heart, but what's the solution? Because I don't see Congress with all that money floating around and the desire to be reelected and maintain power. I don't see Congress, you know, putting any type of constraints on lobbyists or that money or anything like that. I'd like to believe President Trump will kind of change things, but uh, I'm not overly optimistic. What's the solution? Is this here to stay, or is it possible to scale this back? Well, you're getting me all depressed just by the way you asked that question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it, It is a challenge, because think about it this way. You're a member of Congress, and you get on, say, the tax writing committee, uh, if you're on the tax rating committee, you can raise a lot of money from all these interest groups because you have all this power over special provisions in our 76,000-page tax code. Mm-hmm. Now, in theory, in theory, you might understand that it would, it would be much better for the economy to simply wipe out the entire tax code and replace it with a simple and fair flat tax. But guess what? If you do that, your powerful position on the tax committee suddenly becomes – basically irrelevant. I mean, you know, you've turned your committee into a harmless oversight committee uh, because the tax code is no longer picking winners and losers. It's no longer playing class warfare. You no longer have all these credits and exemptions and deductions and preferences and shelters and things like that. So, So in effect, in order to make progress, in order to free our economy from the overreach of government, we have to convince politicians to voluntarily give up their ability to raise campaign cash. And that's a difficult thing to do
1: you know as you're talking i'm sitting here thinking you know uh, something that nobody's mentioned that just kind of occurred to me but cronyism takes two parties it's just not the corporations compromising ethics and trying to get an advantage it's the politicians as well i mean it takes two oh,
2: yeah. and, um, i guess you would say that the politicians are like the drug pushers and the companies are the ones that decide, hey, I'm going to get get on the heroin of, uh, of cronyism.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we've been speaking with Daniel Mitchell. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and his blog is International Liberty, and it can be found at danieljmitchell.wordpress.com. Dan, as always, it's a real fun for me, a real treat, and I appreciate all your time this evening. And uh, you write a lot. I mean, I I follow your articles on on fee.org and Forbes and, and uh, I really enjoy the work you put out and uh, look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon.
0: All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good evening. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
1: Well, we got some interesting news this week, and that is the uh, Congressional Budget Office came out with their estimate, I guess, of what the House GOP health bill would do. And it doesn't look good. But I wanted to address that. Coming up in a little bit, we're going to speak to Dr. Dean Waldeman from the Center for Healthcare Policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation about uh, health care, but I wanted to give you some numbers and stuff before that. The uh, CBO came out and said that it's going to add 23 million people to the list of uninsured by 2026. Okay, so that's 10 years from now. Now, the CBO, first of all, one, I don't believe them. They're never right. Never right. They can't predict yesterday's weather, let alone what's gonna happen in the economy 10 years from now. But 23 million uninsured? Obamacare didn't cover that many people. It's virtually all Medicaid, and it just doesn't smell right. Secondly, it said it'll cut 119 billion in the deficit through 2026. Well, that's only 11 billion, almost 12 billion dollars a year. Now, 12 billion dollars sitting here on the table, you and me, that'd be a lot of money. But the reality is, that's nothing. So it can't be right because the Affordable Care Act is costing us trillions of dollars. Now, Obamacare is collapsing under its own weight. And that prompts senators and representatives to say, well, we got to do something. We got to do something. Doing nothing is not an option, according to Senator David Perdue, Republican out of Georgia. Well, you know what? Doing nothing is an option. Not making a decision is a decision. Let it die on the vine. Let it collapse. But then we got to define what collapse means. It means it won't support itself, so we got to tax and print more money to throw at it. Democrats love this report coming out of the CBO because now they can use that to put fear into people that they're going to be one of the 23 million that's going to lose their insurance. Women and children will die. Everybody's going to die a horrible, gooey death because of the Republican. Healthcare plan. There are solutions to this, and we'll address a few of them today, and and more in the future. But we're trusting Congress with our very lives and our health, and these people are not sharp. The, these people make decisions for their own political reasons, not for the betterment of the country, not for the betterment of you and I. It's strictly their reelection chances, and that's it. Now, the CBO report did say that the Republican plan would bring down premiums in the future, but I don't believe that as well. That just can't be right. Now, the CBO, it's interesting because they put out their estimates of everything, every piece of legislation, but they do it after the fact, and apparently they use economic models that nobody knows what they are, or what the parameters are. That's one thing I've learned over the years is that if you're going to draw a mathematical conclusion, you got to show your work. We don't know how they're coming up with this. They say they're bipartisan, but that doesn't make them bipartisan. If you don't know the math, if you don't know the model, you can't trust the answer. The answer is meaningless If you don't know the economic model, if you don't know the formulas, the algorithms they use, how can you trust the answer? It's no different than taking a story off the internet. Oh, it's on the internet. Must be true. Eh, not necessarily. So the CBO can't count. If you go back years, they've never been right. Never been right. And they justify that by saying, well, it's just an estimate. It's a forecast. It's an estimate. They're not right, and it's going to cause you and I no end of problems with this report. Healthcare is is essentially going to be dead. We know it, but we don't know why. We don't know how they came up with the numbers. Coming up next, I'm going to speak to Dr. Dean Waldeman. He's the director of the Center for Healthcare Policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We'll talk to
0: Dr. Dean next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Dr. Dean Waldeman. He's
1: director of the Center for Healthcare Policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He's a retired pediatric cardiologist and system theorist analyst for the American healthcare with 37 years of clinical experience. He's also the author of award-winning print books, including The Cancer in the American Healthcare System and the e-book series entitled Restoring Care, to American healthcare, Doctor Dean, welcome to an economy of one. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I appreciate you taking some time for us today. Last week, my fuse got relit on healthcare, interacting with some fairly progressive people, and nobody's talking about it in the last couple of weeks. So I thought, what the heck? I think we ought to revisit it. Given all your experience, I've read a lot of stuff that that you have written and the uh, Texas public policy foundation has put out i guess first of all the latest from uh, the house of representatives which uh, my understanding is hasn't gone to the senate yet but overall what's your thought of the latest conversation around the affordable care act and and uh, fixing or replacing it uh the the way to look at it
3: which frankly i'm sorry to say are Uh, Congress people, and I include both sides of the aisle, the way to uh, look at it uh, is to start, if you will, with a medical approach and say, instead of saying, you know, let's put a Band-Aid here or let's, what's the patient's cause of problems? Why is patient health care sick? And I have yet to hear any conversation from either side, Republican or Democrat, saying, okay, what is the cause? Of all this overspending, this the cause of the doctor shortage, the cause of uh, premiums going into the stratosphere, mm-hmm. uh, unaffordable both care and insurance. What's the cause of all this? Nobody's talking about that. They're talking about, well, they have to stabilize the insurance market or they have to uh, make sure that people with preexisting conditions are covered or – other things that might even be true, but they don't get at the problem, which is why the damn system is sick.
1: Well, that being said, i got to ask, why is it sick? I mean, you've been a practicing pediatric cardiologist for a long time. You've gotten in there and literally and figuratively gotten bloody. What's the, the root cause of our problem?
3: Um, uh, obviously, it took me a whole book to, to get there, but uh, I'd be happy to answer it by saying, that the real root cause of it is, in essence, a bureaucracy that has become malignant. That's why I use the analogy, the Mm. cancer in the American healthcare system. I mean, if you look at the system, the system actually uses the patient um, uh, as a a money generator instead of looking at the patient as something that we want to have good and healthy and long-lived and And functional. It looks at the doctor as the culprit, the spender. uh, And so they get in the way of the doctor taking care of the patient. And everything is geared toward um, somebody's saving money or making money um, and not geared toward, well, what's good for patients? I'll give you a a good example. The whole uh, payment structure that we have now They're even talking about value-based, they're talking about uh, accountable care organizations, but they don't talk about tying money to patient outcomes, positive patient outcomes. What if an insurance company got paid more if you recovered quicker or even better if you didn't
1: have a heart attack in the first place? Mm -hmm. So really positive outcome incentives. Exactly. Yes. Yes and yes. Uh, We have to
3: start saying the patient is the the end point of the system, not saving money, number one. Number Mm -hmm. two, we can't just simply say, well, survival is uh, the goal we want because, you know, you can survive after surgery and be paraplegic. That doesn't help you a hell of a lot. On the other hand if, for example, you have uh, some problem and you have a quick operation and you recover within three days and you go home, I think that the um, insurance company should be rewarded. Whoever is the payer should be rewarded. Now, I happen to think that the way to deal with this is to give the people the money in the first place and get insurance only for catastrophic, uh, which is what insurance is really supposed to be. But that's That's, if you will, another topic, which I'm happy to talk about. But the big problem is this malignant bureaucracy, which has taken over the connection between consumer and seller or customer and seller or uh, patient and doctor. I mean, let's face it. It's a real simple connection. Mm -hmm. Uh, The patient goes to the doctor because he's sick and the doctor provides some service. Well, the patient should have faith in the doctor, but a reason to economize because he's taking dollars out of his pocket. That's
1: not the way it works. I agree with you. And what's caused this? Is it government intervention or is it society's expectation that no matter what happens to me, it's not my responsibility, give me a pill, give me a shot, cut something out? Yeah, well, guess what? You're right on both scores. It really started um, uh, from what I
3: consider a well-intended Um, uh, direction. Back uh, in the 1930s, Blue Cross Blue Shield, before the 1930s, people paid for their health care. And uh, when they uh, were sick and lost wages, they got insurance to cover the lost wages. That's basically what insurance was for, or obviously uh, death benefits. Mm -hmm. Uh, In uh, Somewhere in the 30s, early 30s, Blue Cross Blue Shield started this idea of a prepayment system because healthcare was getting more and more expensive. Now, the reason it was getting more expensive was we could begin to do things. I mean, you can't imagine the things that I do now. My grandfather, who was also a physician, as were everybody in my family, I mean, he would sit there with his mouth open if he knew what I did every day, you know, fixing a child's heart without opening his chest. I mean, imagine that. That's right. That's, Science fiction. Well, my point is that that's expensive. On the other hand, you get great value by uh, spending the money to uh, repair a child's heart. I'm I'm picking on something that I know something about. Sure. Um, And so you say, well, wait a minute, $150,000 for open heart surgery on a baby with a big hole in his heart. Yeah. On the other hand, instead of having a dead child, you have a healthy, normal child who hopefully will live 80 or 90 years and contribute to our society and be productive, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, It sounds like a pretty good deal to
1: me. How do you reverse or start trending the Uh, other way, that attitude against that?
3: Uh, Partly, I have to say. We leaders, I include both the politicians and, quite frankly, my colleagues in in medicine, we've kind of oversold, um, the the government has oversold itself that it's responsible for your health instead of you're responsible for your health. Mm-hmm. And we have oversold ourselves in the sense of we can fix anything. You know, you know, we'll give you a diet pill and you can lose 50 pounds. Well, wait a minute. Why are you 50 pounds overweight in the first place? <laughs> Maybe... What you no? I mean, um, yeah. yeah. uh, uh, so so I think that there is some responsibility on the leadership side, and so we need to start reversing that. The other thing, uh, from the sort of technical or financial side, is we need to start connecting the patient, who is also the consumer of services, with the provider of those services, whether it's the doctor himself or the hospital himself, so that. Itself, so that, so that they're actually spending money. I happen to be a big fan of large HSAs, and, and I think yep. that we yep. could stop them for the very poorest members of our uh, community. Uh, the, the, I've heard n- numerous people uh, object to my plan on one uh, – namely, give people money. If you, if you have wealth, let you put it away. Uh, uh, Tax free, and then use it only for medical services. Okay, fine. And the complaint that I've had from uh, s- smart people is, well, you know, people don't understand how to shop for healthcare, and it's very complex. and And my response is, well, wait a minute, hell, uh, a car is very complex. I mean, I don't know half of not hell. I don't know a tenth of the things that go on inside. Uh, the car's engine, but I can shop for a car and I can comparison shop. Well, you know, the Honda's got this, but the Ford's got that. And I'm a good shopper. And so are you. And so are probably 320 other million Americans when it comes to other things. Well, why can't we shop for our health care? And the answer is we can if we had the power, if we had the money, then um, the doctors and hospitals, quite frankly, they're afraid of this, but the doctors and hospitals would have to then compete for our spending. Mm-hmm. And that mean, it
1: means advertising, that means selling themselves. Well, why not? Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm starting to see, as, as I'm sure you have, a change, a radical change in healthcare delivery. In other words, we've got telemedicine, concierge medicine. That's right. And I, I really strongly like those things, especially. I don't like the word
3: concierge medicine only because it implies, well, it's only for the wealthy. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of what I I prefer to call direct pay practices, and they and the average cost and and there's a big message here, which, um, sorry to say, the media is really not getting out there. The these these people. Uh, uh, the direct pay uh, practices are getting paid more than they're getting paid under the the third-party payment system. Yet, yet, the patients are paying an average of 9% of what they were paying. So, you know, suddenly, instead of that uh, hernia repair costing you $15,000, it's costing you fifteen hundred dollars, and if you've got, uh, again, I'm making the numbers up to make it easy, twenty or thirty thousand dollars swirled away in your HSA, you know that fifteen hundred dollar charge suddenly is yeah okay
1: yeah,
3: um, and oh by the way, you went around and shopped, you know, to hernia repair, so you got time. You went around and shopped and said, well, hospital A. Tell me your results and what's your cost. Hospital B, I want to see your results of the last 500 hernias you did and what's your cost. And then you decide which
1: one you want. Yeah, it's really no different than shopping for anything else in your life. You're looking for value. And exactly. when, it, when it's your money, you care what kind of value you get. So uh, uh, completely accurate. Yes, dead on. You're right.
3: Now, it, but we don't have that go now. go ahead. No, no, no. Um, my point is, because of the third-party payment structure and the idea that insurance is paying for your care instead of you're paying for your care, which is really what's happening. And if you look at the the line of dollars, at the end of the day, who's paying for your care or my care? answer is you and me. It's just that it's hard to see it, and it's very hard. Well, frankly, it's impossible to calculate it. And it's very intentional. I'm sorry to say that's why I call the bureaucracy malignant, they've got the, the system structured so that it took me weeks to figure out how much money we are spending as a nation on health care that has nothing to do with care. Mm. And that's part of that book, The Cancer in the American healthcare System. And it's actually, in a sense, the most important part, which is I took the federal budget and I looked for everything that has to do with health care. Wheelchair manufacturers, doctors, nurses, hospitals, pharmacies, anything that actually impacts a patient. And I added all that up. And it turns out that that comprises around 60% of our healthcare spending, which means 40% of all the money we spend for healthcare goes to actuaries and administrators and consultants and lawyers and billers and coders and navigators and everybody except. Your
1: doctor or your nurse. Right, right. The other thing I've noticed, and, and you probably know this much, much better than I do with 37 years of clinical experience. So you've been through managed care and capitation and and all yes. this kind of stuff. You put the healthcare care back to the system you described where the patient is looking for value, paying for it, and uh, the doctor is, is working with the patient to get the patient well and healthy. Kind of takes away the uh, assembly line, the mandate that a doctor has to see so many patients each day and, and all yes. that kind of stuff. Unless yes. you practice medicine again, doesn't it?
3: I mean, uh, the the constant remark that I hear, complaint that I hear from doctors is not money. It is, gee, I wish they would simply let me take care of my patient.
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Dean Waldeman. He's the director of the Center for Healthcare Policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, retired pediatric cardiologist. Dr. Dean, this has been a real treat for me. I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to buy your book and read it before we talk again. Sounds like I'm missing I, out on I, some good information here. So uh, I, 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 w- I hope you do, and I hope
3: a lot of people do. Uh, God knows I'm not making money on it. I really <laughs> want people to start. No, I want them to be yep. informed about health care instead of depending on talking heads.
1: Really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon.
3: Sure. Happy to talk. We were going to talk, not in time now, on um, uh, single payer and the issues with it. But happy to do that if you want in the future.
0: Very good. I appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, as a kid, one thing I always
1: remembered this time of year was my dad would always buy a red poppy from veterans and veteran families that are selling them at the street corners and that kind of stuff and hang it on his mirror every year. And the poppy would be there pretty much all year until he bought another one. Uh, The next year, it looked pretty ragged after a while. But this weekend's Memorial Day, and it's a day of remembering our veterans and all of those that have died in American wars. Now, many cities claim to be the founder of Memorial Day. Now, Waterloo, New York, is uh, officially the birthplace of Memorial Day by uh, President Johnson back in 1966. But it's really hard to prove that because the Memorial Day goes clear back to the 1800s. The first Decoration Day, as it was originally called, first Decoration Day was the 30th of May, 1868. And it was created by General John Logan, National Commander of the Grand Army of the Republic, General Order Number 11. Now, he chose the 30th of May, because at the time, there were no anniversaries to a battle on the 30th of May. It later changed to the last Monday of May and gives us all a three-day weekend, a federal three-day weekend. But originally, it was only recognized by the northern states. New York State was the first to adopt it as an official holiday in 1873 and the south refused to acknowledge the day and they honored the soldiers that died in the confederacy of the civil war on separate days up until after world war one so uh, after world war one then it was designed to honor any american that died in any war it's always important to think of this more than just a long weekend where we get to barbecue and kind of the official launch of summer. But it's also interesting to look back at the different wars that we've been in and how many soldiers have died. So during the American Revolution, there was 4,435 battle deaths. I would have guessed there had been a lot more. It just you know seemed like a lot more. Now, the Civil War, the Union had 140,000 deaths and 224,000 other deaths in service, non-theater. The Confederates had 74,524 deaths and 59,000 other deaths in service. World War I had 53,402 deaths. World War II had 291,000 557 deaths in battle. Another 113,842 deaths in service. Korean War, 33,739. Vietnam War, 47,434. This is interesting. The Gulf War, battle deaths, 148. Now, the Global War on Terror you count uh, people deployed to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, we've had 5,078 battle deaths and another 1,378 other deaths. Bad number, 48,000 non-mortal wounds. So our people have given a lot. Our veterans, acting service members, given a lot to this country. And it's very important that we remember them. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views
3: expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.